HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS combined with the other top five meat companies exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green. We'll talk 2018, the year in wine. We'll taste a bunch of wines that Josh brought in. He's stacked with wines, so during the course of the show, um, we'll taste some, and if we have time, we'll do our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Josh Green is the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine, a five-time James Beard Award winner for excellence in wine writing. Wine and Spirits magazine caters to the wine professional as well as the consumer. Josh has been at the helm of the magazine since the mid-'80s. Besides publishing and editing duties, Josh is also a critic for the magazine for the wines of the Napa Valley, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Port, Rioja, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. 
I'm sure I got most of them, Josh. Pretty much. Um, and also the staff, <clears throat> along with Josh, tastes over 15,000 wines annually, um, which obviously goes into the magazine. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Josh. Great to be here, Sam. Um, well, it's our third year doing our annual year of wine. I want to thank you for joining us and yeah, coming pleasure. back. I can't think of anybody uh, better to sit down and do this. So let's jump right into it. So looking back at 2018, I want you to dig deep into your uh, body of knowledge. Um, I want to look at regions, wineries, winemakers, grape varietals, stuff like that. I want to get your take on it. Sure. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, in 2018, let's start with wine regions. Um, In your mind, in your writing your feelings, what regions have emerged this year, and you feel that they will continue to thrive? Well, the places that I've been most excited about this year, I'd have to say would be Willamette Valley um, in Oregon, Oregon, because there's there's been a lot of activity going in, in there over the last few years, and there's a lot of new thought going into what to do with these volcanic soils in, in the Willamette and how to deal with both Pinot Noir and Chardonnay there. I've tasted some really excited, exciting Chardonnays from the Willamette this year that I'd never seen before, and also um, spent some time there visiting with producers who are doing amazing viticultural work that's really um, pretty cutting edge for the new world. Um, so that's one place I think that is really exciting right now. Um, are they making more Chardonnay now than in the past? They're making better Chardonnay better than Chardonnay. in the past. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I would say more um, site-specific Chardonnay than in the past. And they're making wines that are really much more appropriate for their soils and climate, and rather than making wine to a style. So um, it was for a long time Pinot Gris that was the right. leader in white wines in Oregon. And it still is a very important variety, and there's a, a producer, King Estate, that makes terrific Pinot Gris and really puts it as their flagship. Um, but a lot of the Chardonnay just wasn't really very interesting for a long time. And now um, now there's some, there, there's one vineyard in South Salem um, that Lingua Franca got a hold of. Basically, it was being made by several different people that were all part of the Evening Lands diaspora. Um, and Lingua Franca nailed a contract on it and they are now making wine from it's called bunker hill vineyard they're making a wine from there um walter scott had been making wine from there also a, a an evening land alum and um, mark tarlov at, at um you know felipe ramirez working with mark tarlov at chapter 24 had been making a wine from there and it's really um deeply flavorful wine from a place that doesn't look very interesting, but is making particularly astonishing Chardonnay. Now, Lingua Franca is Larry Stone. Larry Stone's work, yeah. The uh, revered sommelier, exactly, now the, wine the master sommelier, and and um, he is. Um, this is his wine project. Um, it's I wouldn't call it a retirement project. It's really <laughs> a first. Um, it's his first new direction in his career with um, leaving the sommelier world and moving into the production world. Right. Um, Give me some more uh, So in addition to that, I would say that um, the Canary Islands really fascinated me. Um, I went there 
um, based on some research we were doing for our restaurant poll and um, on varieties that because variety diversity was booming in our restaurant poll this year. And I planned a trip to the Canary Islands and was completely blown away by what's going on there. Explain. Canary Islands are west of Spain? They No, actually, Canary Islands are west of um, Morocco. Morocco, yeah. south. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're part of Spain. Right. Um, they have the highest peak in Spain, um, El Tede, which is 12,000 feet. Wow. And um, when, you know, we do this restaurant poll every year, and that's really what we do at the very beginning of the year. It's our our project in January. And what came out of it this year was how diverse the varieties were that were being sold in restaurants. Um, Sam, you had mentioned that you were just at Frenchette and how they have this natural wine list and how diverse that list is. Um, And that's the kind of wine list or that's the kind of diversity in wine list that you begin to see in a lot of very high level restaurants. So rather than our restaurant poll results being mainly Chardonnay, Cabernet, Merlot, Syrah, not even so much Syrah, but um, now we get things like Listan Negro, which is a Canary Islands wine. And so when people started mentioning Listan Negro in the restaurant poll, I started scratching my head and thinking, what's going on? I need to go check out what's going on in Canary Islands. And I'd also been really interested in trying to figure out what the relationship was between Listan Prieto, a grape there in the Canary Islands, and um, Pais in Chile. And people were also mentioning Pais, Chilean Pais in the restaurant poll for the first time. Right. So um, Canary Islands are, and I brought a wine from the Canary Islands to taste with us, for us. uh, You want to do that right now? Yeah, pour it out while we're talking about it. I was, um, the first time I had a Canary Island wine was probably three, four years ago. I was at Estella. And Thomas Carter, who's the owner and a sure. wine guy, mm-hmm. I said, I want to try something new and different, not too crazy on the price. And he brought that out. And those are the type of places and people that are exposing it. And restaurants are exposing it to, you know, the market. All right. So Josh just poured a red wine from the Canary Islands. Set it up for us. So this is called La Solana. It's from Suertes del Marques which is a winery owned by um, Jonathan Garcia. And this is one of the top wineries on the on Tenerife, um, which is one of the um, more populated islands in, in the archipelago. So um, what's interesting about this wine, it's, it's a single parcel wine. He's making a lot of single parcel wines. This is 2014, and it's Listan Negro is the grape variety. He has a lot of old vines that are... Um, trained in this trellis called Cordon Trenzado. So when you see his vineyards, they're on a very steep hillside. It's all volcanic soil. Basically, these these um, islands came up out of a rent in the earth. There are two plates pulling apart, and these volcanoes came up, <laughs> including El Tede, which is so huge. And they those volcanoes blocked the heat from Africa. So the whole north side of the island gets all this cold air and cold weather from the north. So it looks like Galicia, or it looks like um, it looks like a Celtic sort of region rather than right. rather than a desert region, um, just on the north side of the island. And this is on the north side of the island in a place where the volcanoes sort of crashed. And so you've got all this um, volcanic soil. You don't have to have rootstock because there's no phylloxera on the island. You've got these vines trained. They're wrapped. Um, so each a cordon is like a cane of the vine that's wrapped 
many, many different canes, and they go in some cases for 75 feet. Wow. So it's something that you don't see anywhere else in the right. world. Um, and it's sort of hard to figure out how they're going to make good wine out of it. Some of these wines that he's making from his top vineyards, his 100-year-old vineyards, are astonishing. And he worked for many years when he was... This wine he made with Roberto Santana, who is a partner in a winery called Envinate. Right, which and is very hot winery which is right now. One of, that's the hot winery. It's four from, guys, I Yeah, think? it's four guys. Right. Roberto's the one from, the, from Tenerife, actually. Right. And he worked with Jonathan for eight years. And then this is, this is 2014, 2015, he left. 2016, Jonathan brought in um, Luis Siabra, who had made wine at Niport for 10 years. Um, so these two wineries, Envinate and um, Suertes de Marques, are two wineries to look for. The other one that I think is making really amazing wine is Vignatigo. Spell. V-I-N-Y-A-T-I-G-O, Vignatigo. And um, it's run by this guy, um, Juan Jesus Mendez, who's kind of the professor of grape varieties. There are 80 grape varieties on the islands. So he tracks all of them. He's been studying them. He's been, um, you know, sort of trying to figure out how how the blends work best together. He makes a marmajuelo that's amazing, this white, this sort of crisp white wine that's very beautiful. He makes a wine called Ancestrales that's really beautiful. Um, Roberto makes a wine called Marma, um, called Margalagua from the very north northeastern tip of Tenerife. Really old vines. Um, they look like Kolarish. Have you ever been to Kolarish where the vines just sort of crawl along the ground? Yeah. Uh, it looks just like that. That's they, interesting. They don't, um, they don't have any trellising at all. And um, so there's a lot of really ancient viticulture here. And with all these different varieties that have come from all these different countries and settled there, you've got amazing different stuff going on. So let's taste. So it's... Uh, it's good. Color-wise, it's similar to a, a, a Pinot. You know, yeah. it's translucent. It's not deep, it's dark. More gar- it's yeah. not bright. It's more garnet than garnet. most Pinots yeah. would be. It's more um, garnety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think it looks sort of like a Grenache if you're going to compare yeah. it to color-wise. What do you get on the nose? Um, I get the kind of funky aroma that I get from rustic. Um, yes. This is, this is one of his more rustic wines. He has two or three. He's got... El Ceruelo and um, El Esquillon are his two um, top wines. And they're really elegant, really very beautiful. This is a little more rustic, a little more... um, Yeah, it is rustic mm -hmm. on the nose. It's got a medium mouthfeel. It's it's delicious. It's got that sort of strawberry freshness. It's got the strawberry freshness, Mm -hmm. um, but not too bright, but fresh. Mm -hmm. It's a terrific And very light tannins. Yeah. The tannins are, mm-hmm. they kind of go over you smoothly. They're, yeah. not, they're not heavy or anything. Um, so I mean, this is a casual wine. This is not, a, you know, th- I bought this wine this afternoon for like 20 bucks. It's a great so, wine for yeah. 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to drink. It'll pair well with some foods. Mm-hmm. Um, It'd be great with pizza. Pizza. Great Perfect. with grilled sausages. I was going to say yeah. maybe a little charcuterie mm-hmm. meat or whatever. Perfect with charcuterie. Yep. All right. So that's our first wine. I'm going to post everything. And I'm probably going to have to email Josh tomorrow just to get some backup on some of the uh, wines that he mentioned because um, we're talking about a lot of good stuff. All right, so we talked about Oregon. We talked about Canary Islands. Um, any one other place that's... The other place that's fascinating to me, um, 
we had done, we'd, we'd sort of given up on expensive Bordeaux because okay. it's just gotten so completely ridiculous. And so we'd given up on tasting it. And um, we organized a tasting of about 200 and some odd, 250, say, wines from, you know, from Bordeaux, but they were much less expensive. They were $60 or, or $30 or $20 or $12. From every from known Bordeaux region or you All even? over the place. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and Bordeaux is huge. Right. So um, you've got so much wine coming into the market and so much of it is pretty inexpensive. And what shocked me was when I looked at the results, a lot of the wines that I was giving high scores to were from Castillon. And a lot of the wines that were from Castillon were $20, $18, not expensive at all. Now, Castillon and is a region of Bordeaux, Castillon like saint Emilion. Yeah, exactly. Castillon Polak. is one of the Côte de Bordeaux regions. So that's C-A-S-T-I-L-L-I-O-N. Castillon. So this was basically the eastern reaches of um, of the right bank. And so it's east of Saint-Emilion. It borders Saint-Emilion. And a lot of people from Saint-Emilion in, the, in around 2000, 2000, you know, 1998, 2000 were moving there. So the, the cost of land sort of tar- started to move up pretty radically around that time. And it, from 2002 to 2005 or so, the cost of land was about 50,000 euros for a hectare. Um, it had gone up from about 20, wow. from 18 to 20 to Double. 50. Um, but in Saint-Emilion, it was maybe 10 times that. So, um, not 10 times 50, but 10 times 20. Right. So it went back down to 20 because the wines just weren't getting the prices that 50,000 a euro would command. Um, and so a lot of people that moved there, um, were, it still remained kind of a sleepy place and, People th- think of the wines as kind of rustic and not so interesting. Um, but from my point of view, having spent a week there in September, I think that people think of the wines as rustic or less interesting because a lot of people are trying to make them as Saint-Emilion. And you've got a different climate and a different soil, even though everyone there tells you that... Then Saint-Emilion? Then Saint-Emilion, yeah. And it's right next to it. And it's right next door. And, there's, and, and they say that it's the continuation of the limestone plateau from Saint-Emilion. And the limestone plateau is the part of, of Saint-Emilion that you want to be on. And it's what made Saint-Emilion rich. Um, so when I was doing the research for this, I came across at least one geologist who said, no, it's not the same marine limestone as Saint-Emilion. It's actually lake limestone. So it, because you, you're further into the continent, you're, you're getting a continental climate and you're also getting more soil issues from the continent rather than from the sea. Right. So it's, it's actually, you're dealing with a different terroir. And the people making wines for that terroir, like I brought one wine with me um, from the guy I think is really, t- really plugged in. Um, he's from Saint-Emilion, actually, Terry Vallette. His family, until I think it was 95 or so, had owned Chateau Pavie, very Which is famous chateau. Very famous. In, you know, it's the Pavie. There are all these very other good Pavies around consistently, it. Right. Yeah, like Pavie McCann and. This says. Yeah, all, all sorts of other Pavies. Right. Um, but this was the Pavie, and they sold Pavie. Um, they were making a much um, more elegant, older, fa- old fashioned style than what's being made now. Um, but he went and bought 28 acres in, um, in Castillon. He farms it under biodynamics. When he first went there, he it's called um, Clos Puy Arnaud. 
P-U-Y. P-U-Y. A-R-N-O-T. A-R-N-O-U-D. Arnaud. Arnaud, okay. Yeah. So um, when he first went there, he was harvesting after everyone, and he started farming differently, and now he harvests before everyone else. So his fr- wines are fresher, and he's um, a, a lot of them are lighter. And there are all sorts of really, um, really interesting people making wine there now. Um, there's um, Van Nieperg, who has a bunch of chateaus in in Saint-Emilion. He's got Chateau, Van Nieper, yeah, yeah. He's got Chateau d'Agui, which is sort of um, one of the grander properties in Castillon. In Castillon, um, there is um, the Tiempon family, which is based primarily in Côte de Franc, right above um, Côte de Castillon. So Côte de Franc is right to the north, but they have in Pomerol Le Pin, and they have Lif in, um, in Saint-Emilion, and they now have a property, Lettre, in, um, in Castillon that they purchased and are building out. Um, so there's, there's a lot of activity there. And, it's and a lot of major people. Lot, yeah, major people making interesting wines. So you know what I like about you? We're going to taste our second wine in less than 20 minutes. Perfect. That's a good thing. <laughs> so this is the Pavi people that bought the 28 hectares in Castellon. This is the wine that they're making. Yeah, so this is just one of the family members. So Terry, right. Terry is actually a jazz singer. Oh, yeah. I could see already this is a deep, dark, brooding wine compared to the uh, Canary Island wine. Well, there's a lot of Merlot and Cabernet Franc. Right. And in, um, in So two- this is the Puy Arnaud. Clos Puy Arnaud. Yep. Clos Puy Arnaud. Right. And, and it's 2000, year? 2014. 2014, which is not the current vintage, right? No. It's a couple of years of bottle age here. So when I was there, I tasted his 2017, including a wine that he made. Um, the reason I got really turned on by this producer was he made this wine just from Cabernet Franc. And while some other people I'd tasted, um, like Pitre made a wine from Cabernet Franc, um, some other people made just single, single variety wines from Cabernet Franc there. But his 2017 Cabernet Franc was awesome. I can imagine. And it was delicate, um, really bright, and really fragrant wine. So color-wise, it's that deep? Color-wise, it's much darker. Dark. And, it's, and, and the color is, is not transparent like it was on the Canary Islands. No. Yeah. And nose, you get into the black fruits, right? What else do you get? Yeah, I get a little volatility on it, too. I know what volatility means, but what do you mean? Um, I think of it, in this case, a little bit like balsamic. Um, okay. Sort of a dark... Yeah. All right, mouthfeel, it's a, it's a full-bodied mouth. It's a... It's full-bodied, but it's pretty soft. It's yeah. got a lot of acidity. I think because of the Merlot. Yeah. What I guess... I'm an acid freak when it comes to Bordeaux, and what I really like about his wines is that they are... They have a freshness in the finish... It really lasts and drives them. You get the acid right away mm-hmm. on yeah. the tongue. I mean, it's nice. It's not overpowering, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very prominent and all yeah. that. And this is not one of the great classic vintages. You know, 14 is a good vintage. Right. But 15 would have been a much riper vintage. Right. 16 would have been like one of the most sought after vintages. And that's why he made this special one in 17, because he, he didn't want to compete with his 15 and 16 and try to, in a vintage that really wasn't as highly regarded. So he decided he'd make just a little bit of really top wine 
and it was a really good decision. So for Bordeaux, you're saying 16 is even better than 15? I think so. Okay. Yeah. And I know 15 is strong, right? Well, 15 is riper, and 16 is, um, I couldn't call it classical, but it is more, um, it, it's, it's less aggressively fruity than the 15s. Right. That's a taste thing. I mean, people will find certain vintages will deliver to them, you know, things Absolutely. That, that, that they like, which mm-hmm. is a nice thing. And um, for, I think for American wine drinkers, 15 is a, a vintage that appeals a lot. Right. Um, it's a classic American market vintage, yeah. is what you're saying. But it's They'll more, be happy with it. It's more like California wine in some cases. Right. Then, you know, we, taste, we tasted a lot of 15s from Bordeaux that are more like California wine than not. Right. So... All right, so we talked about Oregon, mm-hmm. we talked about Canary Islands, and we talked about Bordeaux, but not, you know, the classic Bordeaux regions, Castillon, and like I said, I will list all the wines. Um, what about grape varietals? In 2018, um, are there grape varietals that kind of broke out that I think what's um what's happening in California and in a lot of a lot of parts of the new world actually is that the Rhone varieties I mean that's what we're focusing on for our next issue which is, is what's going the on January with, issue February issue February yeah. issue what's going on with Rhone varieties like Syrah and Grenache um and Cunois um what What's been, I, I was just up at a, um, an event in Montreal called Psalm 360, mm. and um, they brought in 22 of the most sort of um, high-level Psalms in terms of competition or from around the world, and so they were sort of doing a boot camp with them and then bringing a bunch of people from Quebec, and there were a few of us from outside of Quebec, and um, one of the presentations was from Perrin, um, I think it's Tomas Peran who was giving this presentation about Bocastel. Bocastel, right. And he talked a lot about Cunois and how um, as Grenache becomes um, more problematic with the climate, Cunois is, is, a, is a grape that has, um, is producing much lighter, um, lower alcohol wines for them that are making the, blend, the ability to blend um, more right. attractive for them. So um, depending on where you are in Chateauneuf-du-Pape, <clears throat> Grenache still works really well or it gets too hot. Um, and, but there, there are opportunities for these other varieties. And in this market, in California, or even in um, places, like San, places like South Africa in Svartland, or places like McLaren Vale and Barassa in Australia, you've got people playing with Grenache and Syrah in ways that we really didn't see in the past, making much fresher wines, lighter wines, um, sometimes naturally sort of um, hands-off wines that can be fascinating. And um, we've seen a lot more of that, especially from California. Um, When we were working on our annual issue um, where we select the 100 best wineries, one of the wineries I visited was Donkey and Goat. And... Um, they described themselves, the Brants, um, Tracy Brant was sort of describing their, their wine style 
as clean natural wine. So they... Why do you have to put the clean in front of the natural? I mean, why well, was she saying that? I think it's actually really important, and it's one of the reasons that their wines really appeal to me. They're very hands-off, but very, very careful. So they are watching constantly and trying not to touch the wine as much as possible, but keeping track of it. Monitoring it. Monitoring it, <laughs> keeping track of it, keeping everything so clean in their winery that they're not going to get... Literally. Yeah. Keeping everything so clean, they're not going to get a lot of rogue yeasts or a lot of um, activity in the fermentation that they don't want. Um, and they're ending up with... They make this, um, this Pinot Gris from filigreen farm in the Anderson Valley that is spectacular. And it, every year I taste it, it gets better. And they make, wine, they make a lot of um, Saran Grenache from the Sierra Foothills that are awesome. So um, there are people like Donkey and Goat. There are people like um, Edmund St. John, who, Steve Edmonds, who's been around for a long time making great wines from up there, um, from the Sierra Foothills. There's a guy, um, Andrew Tao, um, who hired David Lowe from Anthill Farms. And um, they're doing a lot of Pinot Noir in the North Coast, but they're also making Syrah and Grenache from the foothills. And they bought some land in the foothills. And that's under the, the brand name The Withers. And um, there's also Skinner up there that's making awesome um, Morved. Um, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with, with Rhone varieties. So... I'm I'm hearing two things. I'm hearing uh, a deeper dive into Rhone varietals, mm -hmm. um, and I am hearing some kind of restraint or backing off from uh, ripeness and well, high alcohol. That, yeah, I mean there were, there was a I mean the there was a big push in the 80s and 90s for Rhone varieties and for you know the, there were the Rhone Rangers in California, right, the Randall Grams and. and all. At the time, there was a lot of Shiraz coming in from Australia. and Which was big and bold? Not yet. Not yet. The, the Shiraz from, Cal from Australia got big and bold in the late 90s. Okay. You know, the 90s were a really interesting decade for a transition in wine style. Because 91 was one of my favorite Cabernet vintages. It was cool. Cabernet, was California? California Cabernet, yep. Yeah. It was cool. It was um, long and late, and you had um, very fresh wines, very light, delicate fresh wines that aged for a long, long time. Not typical of not, the following vintages. Not typical of 94 or 97. Right. or yeah, Higher alcohol, yeah. ripeness. Where um, from, basically from like 92 on, people started making much bigger wines. And um, in Australia, people were influenced by critical acclaim and started making much bigger, richer wines based on what critics were looking for. And in, um, not this critic, but other critics. Sort of a parkerization of style. If you want to call it that. I, I'm calling it, not okay. you. Um, and in California, the same thing happened. And, and it worked probably a little better in Australia because of the, um, the particular interaction. They, they had old vines in Australia um, that they were using to make these very big, bold wines. Right. In California, they had young vines that young Syrah vines and young Grenache vines that they were using to make these big, bold wines, and they were not, they were making glue. They were making really heavy, <laughs> oh, gluey wines. Um, not everybody. Right, but, but they know, were out there. They were out there, and there's still some out there. And so what has happened over the course of the last 
15, 20 years is A, people have begun to pull back on ripeness. People have begun to figure out where these varieties should be planted. And um, one of the reasons that the Sierra foothills is so interesting is very high elevation. So you get cool nights and um, you get a diurnal, a diurnal shift and, and it's an interesting place and interesting granitic soils. Um, you have other pockets for Rhone varieties that are really fantastic, like um, the, the far coast of, of Sonoma and the far coast of right. Mendocino. And from those areas, you get a very different kind of um, spicy um, intensity, especially, I mean, I brought a wine from Drew um, that we can open if you like. It's, I think we should. It's um, probably my favorite Syrah from this past year. Then I have to try it. Okay. Well, then I'll, I'll, get, it, I'll get the cork pulled. All right. So, Josh, here's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. To give you a chance to um, open that wine, we're going to take a quick break. Super. When we come back, we're going to talk about this wine, um, and we'll remind people why and how we got to this. And then I want to talk to you about trends. So cool. you're listening to The Grape Nation. We're talking to Josh Green. We'll be right back. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio, for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. This program is brought to you by Jules Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I am the executive director of HRN and a real-life Juul user. When you cook with Juul, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Parrot app is intuitive to use and preloaded with all the recipes you'll need, and it has a great visual doneness guide. Juul is awesome for holiday cooking. It's easy to cook for a crowd, and it's perfectly precise, so you can focus on entertaining without worrying about checking food temps, while Juul does all the work. You can try out new cuts fearlessly. One of the best things I ever made sous vide was a juicy, tender heritage goose with juniper berries, and it was life-changing. And pro tip, Juul is small and packs easily, so you can sneak it along on your holiday travels to be this season's food hero everywhere you go. With Juul, you get perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code HRN. And happy holidays from all of us at Team HRN.
we're back. We're back with my guest, Josh Green. Josh is the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. I've invited Josh back to do our year-end show to take a look back at uh, the year in wine 2018. Before we were breaking, Josh was about to crack our third bottle of wine, and it's Drew Valente. Valente Vineyard, yes. Tell me about this wine. So Jason and Molly Drew, um, they had been down in the Central Coast, and Jason decided he wanted to move north and start his own company. And he, um, they bought a parcel of land, an old apple orchard, right on the coast. Hmm. And they've planted some Pinot Noir vines there, and some, um, I don't know if they have Syrah there or not. But this is from the Valenti Vineyard, which is six miles from the coast, and it is in Mendocino. And it is a east, so it's east facing on, a, on top of a ridge. And so it's protected a little bit from the sea. It's um, half of the- back to the sea. Yeah, exactly. Half of the vines there were planted from the Shav selection of um, Syrah. So Shav is a very legendary producer in the Rhone. And um, this is made with 50% of it is whole cluster. So um, explain quickly what whole cluster is. When you make wine, when you make wine, you can either destem the grapes and just use the grapes themselves to make the wine, or throw it all in, or you can throw it all in the bunches with the stems and all. And so whole cluster means that the stems and you know the, basically the whole bunches are thrown into the vat. What do and, the stems add? I mean, when you well, do whole cluster, it's definitely a different type of wine. What are you getting from a whole cluster? It typically. really, it really, it's it. You can't say typically because okay. um, I would because, draw that. No, no, no. I mean, one cannot say typically what you get because a lot of a, whole clusters become very trendy, and especially depends completely on how you grow your grapes and whether your stems are are lignifying while your grapes are ripening. So you have if, to explain what okay. lignifying means. Um, when your stems are really green, right. um, they give a certain kind of tannin. When your stems are browner, and um, the, when the wood in them has lignified, they get browner, and they give a different kind of tannin. Is that so, based on when you pick them? Yeah. It's, if you well, pick them later, they it, could be lignified. A little yeah. earlier, they could be greener. Yeah, but So depending, when you pick it and whole cluster both have to do with... Yeah, but it's not only when you pick... It's how you farmed your grapes, because if you farm your vines in a certain way, and you have them in the right place, right. and you get the, it's a matter of coordinating the ripeness of your stems and your fruit. Right. So if, they, if they're coordinated, and they're ripening at the same time, then you, when you use them in the, in the vat, um, the tannins tend to open rather than, rather than adding weight to the tannins, it actually lightens the tannins. Really? And um, you see this in um, really well-made whole cluster wines from the Rhone. You see this in well-made Pinot Noir with whole clusters. But you know there are a lot of people just using whole clusters, and what they get is really aggressively um, peppery wine. Right. This wine needs about a day to be open. Really. To really show what it, you know when really? I um, <clears throat> when you first taste it, it's a beautiful wine. But when you taste it a day later, it it, it'll make I mean, really? it made me melt yeah it was just it's astonishing when you taste it a day later and, and all those tannins have opened up um, so to, wait to that point how often are you tasting wines where you're tasting them the next day not always not every wine right not or every do you wine. try to do that 
Did not you every know wine. you needed to do that with this wine, or you just... I do it with any wine that I like. See what happens the next day? Yeah. Okay. So any wine that I like or that I see as a little confusing, that I don't really quite understand, that I see potential in... Let me sleep on it. Yeah. So I may... I mean, we, we use the Wretched 100-point scale, um, <laughs> but it's useful, it's useful to us because it does allow us to make distinctions among different wineries at the end of the year. Um depending on how they performed um, in, with, with our ratings. But um, if, I give a, if I give a wine on first taste, 87, but it looks really kind of interesting, I'll go back to it. Most wines I give 87 to, I give 87 to them because I'm not so interested in them. Do they jump up the next day? Some do. Some. And some crash. Okay. Yeah. So it goes and either some, way. Yeah, and some wine that I might think, wow, I could give this wine a 92 or a 93, and I taste it the next day, and it's completely dead. Right. Not so interesting. Right. But this wine, I might have given it a 91, <clears throat> 92, 93, tasting it later in the afternoon, 94, 95, tasting the next day, 95, 96, tasting the day later. And I ended up giving it a 95. Um, I think it should have gotten a 96 based on my note. You know, I All mean, right, I was, let's do a quick evaluation. So it's a, a, a... This is back to that kind of transparent edge that we saw with the... A transparent um, edge, but pretty deep and dark. Yeah, in the middle. With, yeah, yeah, in mm-hmm. the middle for sure. The uh, nose. Um, right now, the nose, I think, is pretty closed. I get a lot of spice. Spice. Um, and you were saying before a lot of green olive. Yeah. All right, mouthfeel. I think of it as green peppercorn. Like, I think of crushed, you know, if you crush green peppercorns, to me, that's a marker of Far Coast, far coast Syrah. I get tapenade, peppercorns, and olives mixed up sometimes. But when they're there, there's something mm-hmm. going on. Mouthfeel is pretty full. Nice. Mouthfeel is full, but for me, the texture of this wine is pure bliss. It and, really is. And I think it's it's so astonishing to me that I get so excited about a Syrah from California um, because of the texture and because of the way the spice interacts with the texture of the wine. It's just, it's energized. It's, it's, it's a really dynamic feel in your mouth. It's a terrific And wine. it sort of... It warms my whole body without alcohol. Right. Which is typical of, you yeah. know, Syrahs and all that. What's um, approximate retail on a wine like this? Um, this wine is 48 bucks, but you can't find it. He made 100 cases it's of tough. it. It's tough. Yeah. Okay. You can probably, I mean, I don't know if you can buy this wine, this That's particular it. vintage, but if you get on his mailing list, um, we've... He's making good wines We have. I think that which which vintages we gave his 2008, his 2011, his 2014, and his 2016 from Valenti 95 points or higher. So it, so if you buy a Valenti, if you buy a Valenti, see I keep wanting to say Pinot. If you buy a Valenti Syrah from Drew, you're getting a damn good wine. So two things: one, get on the mailing list. Yeah, because of the consistency and the quality, and for sure it's a wine and spirits favorite. Um, I will post that on the website. Let's talk trends for a couple of minutes. You do a, a restaurant. Do I have to stop tasting this wine? No, no, no. As a matter of fact, I need <laughs> or you to drinking pour. it. You told me you wanted to bring it back. I think I may drain it from you. You may have to pour me a little more. Um, you do an annual uh, restaurant poll, and from that you do a thing called the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, I think restaurants play an important part in wine, wine knowledge, exposing people to wine, important to the industry. Um, anything going on in restaurants, any trends, I mean, you know, different than for us, as I mentioned at the start, um, the biggest trend is esoterica. 
which that means which means that there're many more high-level restaurants selling wines you've never heard of before. Now, are we talking like the fancy legacy mainstream restaurants or just the guys Well, what in do you mean mid- by a fancy legacy you restaurant? You know, in New York, like a Danielle or an 11 Madison or I think you'll find a much more mixed list at 11 Madison or um, Danielle than you would have 10 years ago. Okay. Absolutely. So to that point for sure. Yeah. Um, I think and then as you go down a little, not in quality, but the type of restaurant, it even blows up more. Well, you were you were mentioning before um, someone like Jonelle Falner, um, who's from Atomics. At Atomics. Um, if you go to a restaurant like Atomics, you're going to see all sorts of wild stuff. If you go to even the modern, you're going to see a lot of wild stuff. Um, from classic to current, you know, yeah. and and Vianati, you know, you'll see yeah. all of that stuff. So. The answer was a diversity of... Diversity. Know. And the fact that, that, that wine drinkers, um, guests at these restaurants, are happy to experiment. Um, because in the past, one of the things that prevented the restaurants from really diving into this was that they had resistance when they were <clears throat> selling these wines to consumers. Right. Um, now diners, when they go to the restaurants, they're looking for complete experience they're much more they're much more accustomed to going to a restaurant and having a tasting menu where people are deciding on their food and so they're letting people decide on their wine as well right and people are much more relaxed about it and much more interested in learning you know I have a friend um, Tina Vaughn at the Simone whenever I go there I just say Tina pour me whatever you've got open and she brings me things I've never heard of they're absolutely she, she's really careful about how they work with the food she thinks really interesting ways about making them work with the food. And it's always like revelatory to drink wine at a place like that because you learn not only about new wines, but also about, wow, I would never have thought about putting that wine with right. that food. Right. So you partially answered my next question, but add on to it. One of the things Wine and Spirits magazine does is a best new psalm. Uh, every year, you mm-hmm. go out and you look at the uh, whole country and people in the Psalm community, and you have a criteria where you select a handful of Psalms um, each year. So, in in the Psalm world, and you know these are people that are a touch point, you know, to restaurants. And the example sure. you just gave, you know, mm-hmm. can enlighten you about a pairing or a wine or a region or whatever. Um, I guess. That's a trend in where Psalms are going. You know, what else? I mean, I think it's getting younger. Well, I think Psalms are getting younger because a lot of the older Psalms are moving into distribution or winemaking or, or, or right. yeah, they're they're they burning out and, and yeah, they're burning out and they, their knees are going and they're getting out of the business. We're at that growth mm-hmm. time, yeah. right? And there is there's a lot of I think there are a lot of young sommeliers because um, they learned to take you know, when when you and I were growing up, um, our parents were not drinking. At least my parents weren't drinking wine. Um, and when Same. the young, when the generation that's now coming of age was growing up, their parents were drinking wine, and were they were Good learning point. about wine from Good their point. parents, and they wanted to. They were interested in getting into the wine industry, and and the and being a sommelier is one way in. Um, so I mean, I would when I came out of school, I was a sommelier for a year. And um, but it was not considered a, a, a legit profession at the time. Right. And now it is. Right. Um, so and and people can actually make a good living, um, or or start a really good career, with that as their base. 
Um, so Evans Rayleigh said when he was at Windows of the World, there were seven sommeliers in New York. Yes. Now there's seven at 11 Madison. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, the world has changed <laughs> a bit in that sense. I think you're right about that. Um, so, yes, I think uh, it's, it's generational. There's a different outlook, different people coming in. And I think you and I would agree that's refreshing. It's refreshing. It, they have a different perspective. Um, I don't always agree with their perspective, but it's fascinating to learn from them. Right. So it's, it's okay yeah. to hear. And you we know, taste new yeah, at the magazine. We taste with a lot of young psalms all the time, and um, some are, you know, there there is a generational difference because some is when we started tasting with them twenty thirty years ago. Um, I would say they were much more interested in learning how to blind taste. And now they're much more interested in learning how to blind taste for their master sommelier pin. So, <laughs> right. so it's a different kind of um, learning to taste wine for the court of master sommelier or learning to taste wine for the WSET courses. Right, the motivations is a, yeah, are... Is very different from yeah. the way that we taste wine at our magazine or the way that... Right, um, with the wine new Psalm taste Three wine. movie yeah. coming out, and yeah. you know the profession blowing up. It's uh, very competitive, actually. It, it is very competitive. Um, all right, I know this. I wouldn't say it's a sore subject. That's not fair to say at all. You're bringing but, up natural wine. <laughs> yes. So there's been there's no denying there's been incredible growth in natural wine. Definitely interest. You know, restaurants are doing natural wine lists only. There's also been a shitstorm. Um, a couple of people have written articles, you know, that have been viewed in different ways. Um, I said this to you earlier. I wanted to ask you about natural wines because there's not too many other people I'm interested in hearing. And I only care about, you know, what you think. Um, where are we at with natural wines? You know, where is it going? I mean, just give me I guess from my thoughts. from my perspective, um, I don't know what a natural wine is because if I define a natural wine, it means that the other wines are unnatural. Right. So I think there is a, um, a spectrum of intention from people who want to make wine without using grapes to people who want to make wine without touching grapes. So, um, good point. <laughs> um, and there are people on, on every end of that, you know, there are people on both ends of that spectrum and everywhere in between. So the way that I think about it is more how people farm and their intention in farming and the way they relate to their vineyard and the way they treat their vineyard and how that then um, carries into their winemaking process, their, the way that they the way that they shepherd those grapes that they've farmed into a bottle eventually. And um, I think what people call natural wine is when the intention of the winemaker is to intervene as minimally as possible. Um, I think I want to see people intervene when there's a problem. Um, out of necessity. Out of necessity. The right um, I want to see them farm their grapes in a way and treat their soil and treat their vines in a way that generates fewer problems in the winery. And there are people who do that. So um, I'm not necessarily a believer in no sulfur wine because I think that it, I don't think we have the infrastructure to get the wine from the producer to me safely. 
without a little sulfur. Yeah. Um, some have proven that you can make a good unsulfured wine right. and still ship it. Well, um, sulfur occurs naturally, but probably not enough. Well, and it really depends on, I mean, it depends on how stable the wine is in right. and of itself. Um, I've had really great unsulfured wines, but you get a lot of bulb variation. Right. So um, I'm, I don't have this feeling like I only want to drink wine without any sulfur in it at all. I'd rather they minimize the amount of sulfur that right. they had to use, but used a tiny bit of bottling or where they thought it was going to make the difference. I don't want to see people suffering their yeast, suffering and killing off their, their yeast from the vineyard and then inoculating right. because I don't tend to like wines as much that are made that way as wines that are made using the microbiology from the microbiome from the vineyard to ferment. Right. So, um, so I don't know if I'm figuring this out or not, but the practices in the farm for natural wine are sound and, you know, good for the earth and the grape and all of that. I guess when it gets into the cellar, mm -hmm. that's where things take a turn. And, you know, we just discussed sulfur, inoculation, you know, all that's where the consistency, the funkiness. Yeah. Is and that I think a there, fair observation? Well, I think there are people who use no additions but sulfur, and there are people who use no additions. Right. And um, a lot of people define natural wine as, from, as wine made with no additions. Right. So there's no sulfur in it. Um, there's sulfur in it from the fermentation, but no added sulfur. Um, I think that there, you know, as I say, there's a whole spectrum. And um, I'm happy to drink wine from someone who uses sensible farming and, and sensible winemaking and who is not necessarily organic, but is hewing to the same kind of philosophical right. approach. And by the way, there's a lot of producers out there that are not certified or yeah. registered, you know, Demeter or whatever. And there, and there are organic farmers who might as well just be conventional farmers right. for, for all intents and purposes. Right. And there, there are, you know, there's a lot of copper sulfate in organic farming. There, there are other things that are not necessarily positive. Right. So um, I think that reasonable and... Farming with the with the right intention is what I'm looking for. Right, which which I agree. Um, Josh, we're going to wrap up. Um, I want to thank you for coming in. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at Sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. You could follow the show on Facebook at the Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at S Ben Ruby and the. Uh, Grape Nation hashtag um, on Twitter at Ben Ruby. Also subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Um, like I said earlier a few times, I'm going to post all of Josh's um, selections, the wines we tasted, a lot of the wines he talked about, because the reason I brought them in is um, for that reason so that you uh, can learn about some of these wines, possibly taste them. Um, Josh, let's talk about where we could find you in the magazine. Your next issue is going to be... Our February issue, February, February 2019. Issue. And yep. just give me a little sneak peek. It's going to be on Mosul Riesling and Saran Grenache. Okay. And um, it's going to be out in uh, mid-January. Okay. It goes to the printer next week. 
Okay. And um, we're excited about some of the wines, some of the Grenache, especially that we found for it. So, um, which we discussed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could follow on Instagram, Wine and Spirits Magazine at Wine and Spirits, right? Um, WineandSpiritsMagazine.com. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and one last thing before I let Josh go, it is our end of the year fun drive. Um, we'd like you to become a member. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to events, um, meet hosts, things like that. You'll get some swag. So 2019, which is exciting, is our 10th year. Fantastic. Congratulations. Um, So help us make it uh, the most impactful and delicious year yet. So please, we're reaching out to you because we're funded by our listeners and our sponsors. Go to uh, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a donation and help us uh, celebrate our uh, next year. Um, I want to thank Josh Green. Josh is the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. I've summoned him back for the third consecutive year to talk about um, 2018, and I think we discussed a lot of exciting wines, winemakers, and trends. Um, like I said, I will post everything. Um, I want to thank our engineer, Gnome, for not yelling at me today. And everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.